Hello, I'm Stuart from Blurred, and this is episode seven of Do Not Adjust Your Focus, our podcast which aims to explore the interesting spaces where business, politics, culture and comms come together. My guest today is a perfect embodiment of that confluence of world-shaping forces. His career has spanned from the Foreign Office as Ambassador to Turkey to Chief Executive at UK Trade and Investment, and today he's Group Corporate Affairs Director at Centrica, one of the world's major multinational energy companies. Today I'm talking to Nick Baird. Nick, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, Given where we are at the start of 2020 and and what's happened politically, I've kind of got to start with that, got to start with the big one, Britain and Brexit. Mm. Um, So Britain's embarking on a a new new journey and... um, Regardless of what anyone thinks of Brexit, this this podcast takes no position. Um, there must be, uh, I mean, there needs to be interesting new new prospects for for British business. So not so much a a silver lining as a a golden opportunity to recalibrate and redefine and renew. You were CEO um, of UKTI for nearly three years, so it's obviously. A real area of expertise for you. What What's your advice to British business right now? So, um, hands up, I, I was a Remainer, but I'm not a Ramona. Um, and I am quite positive about that next period. But I do want to kind of start with the challenges. So, I do think trade deals are very important. Of course, you can trade with any, any country without them, with WTO rules. But... Um, all my experience from UKTI shows that where you've got a trade deal with a country, you've opened up the market more. You know, the capacity for trading is is by definition much, much wider. And it will be hard. So, you know, we will be looking for a big trade agreement with the US. Um, the US is very much in an America first mode at the moment. And the USTR, who do the negotiations, I've engaged with them. These guys are tough. Um, and it will be a hard deal. China will want a lot out of us, um, and they'll want access to parts of our economy without restriction that we'll be uncomfortable about. You've only got to kind of think of the Huawei nuclear issues at the moment. India will be uh, challenging because, you know, when when one engages uh, in trade discussions with India, almost always a migration element to it, and that'll be difficult. Brazil is, you know, under its current leadership is going to be even more kind of inward focused than it has been before. And then, of course, getting the right agreement with Europe will be important. That said, what I think the real opportunity of the next phase is is actually to address you know what has been weak about our economy over the last period. You know, we have this uncomfortable secret of low levels of productivity, and that has been driven by um, a lack of or not sufficient investment in skills, technology, and so on. We have taken the opportunity. Um, partly which was offered to us by free movement from Eastern Europe, of of actually making our money too much out of low-wage aspects of the economy. So the opportunity is to push ourselves much more in the direction of high investment, high skills. And and I think, you know, whether we had Brexited or not, that is the direction that this country has to go. Whether, Whether Brexiting will actually help us, I'm not actually convinced about at all but that is what we have to do how how do we start that process how do we address those weaknesses and and what are the relative strengths and and weaknesses of british business as a whole as as you look at it right now so we do we do have to identify and incentivize the sectors where we have real potential added value 
Um, and I would say that certainly includes the creative industries, it includes education, it includes high-end manufacturing, it definitely includes the technologies around the green economy, um, and so on and so forth. And in the services area, again, it's essentially the, uh, the high-end of services. So that's what we need to focus on. How do you do that? You do need to either centrally as government invest in skills or find ways of incentivizing business to do so. You need to create, I would say, not, and I think this is a, there's this kind of false dichotomy about, you know, we need either to be a Singapore upon Thames, a kind of low regulation, low tax economy that will compete in that way, or we you know, we become protectionist and then we're looking and so on. I, th- I think we can absolutely be a high high regulation economy if the, the, the focus that we have in our industries um, and where we employ people and the bits that add value, if they are high margin, high added value areas. I think your real challenge and the challenge for a, for a country of the size of the UK if you're going to do that is, is how, in an economy of that kind, do you employ everybody? It's easier to operationalise for smaller um, countries with smaller populations to employ. And that's your challenge. So you've brought up um, our relative small size as a country, which is interesting, because I think that poses two questions to me. The first is the level of confidence you, you have looking at it in, in our ability to do the to do the international deals you're talking about as, as a much smaller country than China and the US and, and even Brazil in some ways. Um, but also, I think even within this country, it feels to me like it's, um, we know it's divided, but it's also very different yeah. in, in its division. So are, are we too London-centric? Are we really talking about yeah. London here versus the rest? So how do we square these various circles so so uh, you know i think that is the big challenge so i do think that you know what what underlay brexit and what brexit is in a sense a faustian pact between is those who want a low regulation low tax very open economy um migration fine um trading with the rest of the world and that's how you compete and those who are much more around a little england um, focus on ourselves, high levels of social protection economy. And, 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 that, and that's the bridge that you have to cross, as it were, that you have to unite two sides. Um, and, of course, I believe it's possible, and, and I believe we've got evidence of it in specific sectors. Um, I do think that, you know, if, if, if you look at our high-end manufacturing, it's not just London. It is around different parts of the country, but there will be a painful transition um, to that because you know, so th- those parts of our economy which are not high added value, I suspect over the next period, will fade and disappear. So I do think, n- not all of it, but I do think our automotive industry is under you know, serious challenge. Um, so, so there are going to be real different opportunities and challenges for, for different sectors and industries. Mm-hmm. There will also be different opportunities and challenges for different sizes of business, yeah. what um, what are those, and what advice would you give to you know British multinationals yeah. versus small exporters? 
Yeah, I think you are absolutely right. Um, and I think the the most important thing to bear in mind with multinationals is, is, you know, it's in the name. They are multinational. So they might be headquartered in the UK, but that doesn't necessarily mean where they will be investing, producing, manufacturing. They will do that wherever it is most advantageous for them to do so. And the value that then accrues to the UK will depend you know, of course, it's partly about where they're headquartered, but it is very substantially about where they decide to do their manufacturing or production of services or, or whatever. And the really important thing to bear in mind and remember for multinationals for the United Kingdom is uh, to uh, remain and become even more so a really good inward investment environment. And that means it doesn't necessarily mean low regulation and low tax. I mean, it, with all the kind of companies I engage with, th those were not massive issues. Right. It's not low, it is stable regulation. And in fact, big multinational investors want to engage with and abide by strong environmental regulation. So I think the low regulation thing is a misnomer. I do think for small companies, generally speaking, China, India, Russia, Brazil, the BRICS, it, it is challenging. And it's also challenging to get your brand at all known yeah. uh, at that scale. But the next um, uh, level down, so Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, Turkey, Mexico, Ghana. I mean, those are those are actually quite good countries for for uh, smaller companies to kind of dip their toes in when they're looking um, to go into growing market. But, but I would also say, you know, depending on the, on, on the, um, uh, the deal we do, the Europe remains a really, really good market to start and to kind of learn about how to export. I'm mentally uh, listing out those second-tier countries trying to create an acronym out of them. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, um, I, I picked up in just the conversation so far uh, maybe a tacit frustration from you at this false dichotomy, as you, mm. as you term it. This, this, I think, is slightly lazy media analysis that's yeah. partly to blame for this, where we've presented with this image of a crossroads down one road of which leads to you know, freewheeling Singapore on Thames and the other road leads to, uh, I don't know, a, a kind of little England... Yeah. everything nationalised Britain of the 1970s yeah. and of course that's, it, as you say it's a false, a false dichotomy There is the answer lies mm. somewhere in the middle as it tends to always what do you think that looks like the eventual Britain we should become or the Britain you hope we, we do become what's, what's the opportunity for us more broadly culturally what, what, what pitfalls do you hope yeah. to see us avoid so, so I, v I very much hope that we do not fall back onto a protectionist, inward-looking society. There is a possibility there. Um, I mean, I think people kind of slightly forget when we, you know, look back. We, we all have short memories, um, you know, either young people because they weren't there or old people because they've forgotten, um, like me. Um, but, you know, before we, before we joined the European Union, we were economically the sick man of Europe. And I'm certainly not saying that, you know, the fact that we have managed to kind of grow effectively out of that is all down to our European Union membership. But we were. We were British Leyland. We were big, heavily unionised economy, etc. Et and it was, so, you know, Britain on its own there was not a huge, fantastic success at that particular time. So, so one thing we need to remember is not to go back 
to that sort of more inward looking, more heavily in unnecessary ways regulated economy. And what we do need to do is really build on our diversity, build on our skills levels, invest in that, level out between the regions. You're absolutely right. We have to do that. It is not sustainable democratically. We are you know, the most, almost the most centralised country in the world, and we have, of developed countries, almost the worst levels of um, inequality. Um, so we have to do that. And I think the challenge there is, you know, it, it will involve, you know, uncomfortable in some senses for, you know, classic capitalist economics, it will involve quite a lot of, I think, borrowing and government intervention. And it will involve big infrastructure projects. It will involve creating ecosystems around particular industries where we can succeed. And by ecosystems, I mean um, clusters where you have big companies invested. You have universities supporting technologies that those companies are developing. You have supply chain building around. And that just that doesn't happen on its own. Mm. I mean, of course, there is, you know, it's, it's partnership. It's private sector, public sector partnership, but it will involve investment. And I suspect we will have to take some kind of risks with our borrowing levels over the next period to achieve that. Is that also going to require the national government of, of the day to to place bets on industries it thinks are going to be successful? Because I, that's obviously anathema to, yeah. I, to I mean, a, a true, true free market liberalism. I, I think it is. I mean, what, what, what I would say in terms of you know why that's failed in the past is um, you've got to make you've got to make the right bets, um, and they have to be a public sector private sector partnership. I don't think you can avoid making those bets because I think that the degree to which we need to kickstart the process, which will lead to us getting to to the place of a more productive, higher skilled economy, we can't kind of just wait for the market to do that. I think that the you know, what, what the laissez-faire approach of the last kind of 20 years has led us in the direction of, I would say, is a, a, a market in which businesses have too much, it's not all of them, but too much depended on getting their or achieving their success through low margin, low skill, low wage businesses. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things you, you really sense as you kind of drive up the M1, for example, is, you know, the huge amount of people who are employed in logistics. And it, it, it's not the way to go um, for for an economy like us to to be sustainable and highly productive relative to others in the world going forward, I would say. And, we, and, that, and that is actually what we've got to what we've got to address. And, and, and this is the silver lining of Brexit, right? It, it, it's a forcing function. It will force us to yep. conf- confront all these challenges that I, I guess have been yep. swept under the carpet. Let's talk about Europe a little bit. Um, you, uh, when you were at the uh, FCO, you were UK representation to, to the EU as first secretary under Thatcher, I believe. Looking back at that time, which must have been fascinating, could you see the seeds then of, of what, clearly became a fractious relationship leading to where we are my career in the in the foreign office took me into european issues 
right the way through our recent history. So I, w- I was doing European issues under Margaret Thatcher. I was doing it under Tony Blair. Right. I was doing it under John Major. And so I've kind of seen the development. But I, I kind of, on that issue, I, I sort of take it back to... So I was reading a, um, a very good biography of General de Gaulle over the summer. And de Gaulle, of course, famously... Um, vetoed British membership in the late 60s. Yeah. And you know, reading what he said is kind of slightly, um, you know, he's very prophetic. So he said, we shouldn't let them in because they're too big, they're too difficult, they will hinder us from doing what the rest of us want to do and eventually they will leave. I well, mean, so, so I mean, basically that's what's happened. And I, and I think, you know, Britain does have an uneasy relationship with the... European Union and British people have always had an, an uneasy relationship. So, you know, if you go back to the 19th century, again, you've got a big British empire, you've got a Russian empire, you've got a Turkish empire, and you've got Europe, generally speaking, either with a, a powerful Germany or a powerful France engaging more collectively together. So I think I think you've got that historical issue, which we the trend we were trying to buck. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the, the big opportunity in the Thatcher period was uh, setting up the single market. And I continue to think the single market is a great thing. But what I don't think that she or we or any of the rest of us thought about at that point was that the logic of a single market is that you then have a single judicial single a system. If you want to drive it quickly, you have majority voting and so on and so forth. Um, and it, it may start with things which sound as simplest product mm. standards and you know everybody kind of agrees that it's a good idea to align to the extent that one possibly can in that area but then it does take you into things like free movement of workers yeah. free and that's kind of been i think the more the more recent challenge you know that that said you know i st- i still think that we were very successful in having a kind of semi detached relationship because we're not in the euro we were not in schengen we had an abatement on our budget contribution. And for many of us, that was a, you know, a really good halfway house. Yeah. So, you know, the, de- the degree to which we were going to be pulled towards a, you know, a federalizing center, we had that kind of uh, one step away. And I, and I do think so, some of the many thoughtful Brexiteers who are part of my network actually think that you know, we, we we would have finished up in the same position relative to Europe, whether we'd stayed or whether we'd left. In other words, in a kind of outer circle, um, not fully closely engaging with an inner circle, but not part of it. Um, and, I, you know, I think there is I think that th- th- these things happen over time. But I think over time that is. You know, one of the um, you know, what, I think that's the truth. I think we will be we, we will be we will be. And why it'll be very, very different is that there'll be an out, there'll be an outer circle with a very big power in it, ourselves, very possibly Turkey as well, um, and then you know uh, some smaller states who are either in the outer circle because they're waiting to be ready for the inner circle or because they choose to stay permanently in the outer circle. And I, I do think that will be a much more settled arrangement than the one that we've had. You mentioned Turkey. Turkey, that's fascinating. So you, you went on to be ambassador to Turkey. Um, I'm currently geeking out on the history of the Ottoman yeah. Empire, loving the Netflix show about it. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you feel about the state of things there now? So Turkey is a is an absolutely fascinating country. And it is, you know, it's fascinating, but very largely because of its geography and its culture. So it is 
a bridge between the West and the East in both those senses. And it has had a an extraordinary last 40 or 50 years. I mean, essentially, it has grown from being what was a principally rural country with a very small Western-facing elite through, you know, the, the engine of economic growth that it has achieved to being a predominantly middle-class country now and a middle-class country which holds within it a lot of different cultures. You know, it, 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 it is never going to be an easy country to manage. I would say it has taken too much of an authoritarian turn over the last period, but it is a country which we need to engage with. You know, it's one of, one of the challenges of um, foreign policy in all parts of the world is, is you know, how, how you engage with countries which don't necessarily kind of see like you do in terms of their government structures. I think that it's, you know, the opportunities that it offers both in terms of the economy and commercially, both as a huge engine of economic growth itself, but incredibly well networked into Central Asia, into the Middle East and so on, as a, a business partner is really strong. I think it continues to offer a really interesting model in terms of the balance between or bridging between Eastern cultures and Western cultures. And we have to coax it back in our direction mm. um, in areas where, you know, it, it appears to be pulling away. And I think, you know, it's one, one of my regrets that we weren't able to make more progress in terms of Turkish membership of the European Union. Of course, it would have been difficult and challenging. You'd have been effectively taking in the most populous member state would would by the time that it would have joined it would have been bigger than Germany yeah. and that is always going to be a, a challenge and of course overall per capita the economy is, is is well behind that so that that's a massive challenge but the benefits that it would have brought I think way far outweigh the the downside so it's a shame we weren't able to make more progress on that and I think that in itself would have coaxed Turkey more in our direction do you see there being more opportunity to, because that political process of ascension to the EU could take forever, mm. do, do you see there being more opportunities to um, integrate with Turkey in terms of, from the business side? So they're, they're making, they have huge plans, I know, to, to turn Istanbul into a, a, yeah. a tech hub, yeah. um, probably because of that unique yeah. geography, one foot in Asia, one, one foot in Europe. And that presumably provides opportunities for for European businesses, for British businesses, as well as for, for, for Turkey itself. So I think I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the um, so 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 Istanbul. I mean, you only have to kind of you know touch down an Istanbul airport on the way to wherever you happen to be going to realise just what an in incredible hub it is and a link to so many different parts of the world. And and it is it, it is itself a very, very powerful economy. I mean, Istanbul was, I remember kind of using these stats when I was ambassador, so I hope they're still right. If it joined the European Union on its own, it would be, I think, the sixth biggest member state on its own. Wow. This, is a, this is a city of 18 million people, if you take the, right. actually the accurate figures, which cover the entire, you know, the, the, the way that it's developed as a city, having been a a central city and then the suburbs kind of joined up. And, you know, when I very, very first visited Turkey as a student, if you um, drove from Ankara to Istanbul through the south, these were just villages 
they're now you know mile upon mile of middle class existence and it, so it's a hugely powerful economy on its own so i do think it can become a hub of all kinds of things including tech and i do think that, that is a really interesting partnership opportunity for the uk going forward you know what why do people come to london for tech well you know a, a good part of it is because people love living in london because of how diverse it is and all, all the rest of it and we have got ourselves into a place where we have good regulatory environments for tech startups and so on we have good incubators we have and so istanbul should look at london as a good model for you know what you need to invest in to achieve that and i don't i don't think we should you know there's pl- there's plenty of space for plenty of cities to be real drivers of technological growth and supporters of startups and i think it'd be i think it'd be very sensible for us to kind of work together with istanbul which would attract and it would attract attract entrepreneurs from the middle east it would attract entrepreneurs from central asia in a way that i suspect we would struggle to do so to London to the same extent. I want to talk to you about technology because um, it's obviously it's one of the, the most interesting things to be happening at, at Centrica is mm. the, the, the recalibration from de facto energy company to a genuine mm. tech business. Um, I know you've made huge investments in connected home technology um, and Centrica Innovations is directing millions of pounds of accelerator in investment into tech startups. What's the state of tech and innovation in, in the UK? Can, can we be a global leader in, in that? So I, I think we can. I, I mean, if I if if I look at sort of energy tech to begin with, which I think is a huge growth area because of the, the, the challenges of climate change and because of the need to make the transition to a low, lower carbon economy and to do so at pace. The, the, the areas, I guess, that uh, it would be accurate to say that, that Centrica particularly focuses on are energy efficiency, so using less energy and tech helping you in that way smart energy systems which are supportive of energy efficiency as well to use a more balanced system in support of your energy uh, objectives making green renewable energy more cost efficient and optimizing its use th- th- those are the areas that that Centrica are particularly focusing on so to give you to give you some examples so we are uh, building a very large battery a 50 megawatt battery in uh, near the lake district which essentially will store the wind that when when the wind blowing it'll store it and the sun is shining it'll store it and then push back into the um into the grid when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining which kind of evens out the system makes the wind and solar more cost effective in terms of their contribution to the overall energy needs and then if you look at for example you know large organizations large hospitals and so on many of those have backup generation Um, they need they need it and and it's about making organizations think about their generation their backup generation not as backup but as part of their normal need and and also as a contributor to the overall needs of the country so imagine a hospital you can take out its diesel generator give it a renewable generator which can be used for emergency but then it can also be used at peak times when it's particularly expensive to pull out of the grid to reduce your costs and then when you have a surplus you can push it back into the grid and the more you operationalize small flexible generation units like that across the country the less you need to build large um, other ones and so on and so forth. So that is you know, another area. 
we're, we're helping um, big wind farms, for example, um, with optimising their offering into the into the into the grid, for example, with you know very clever meteorological algorithms which can predict the weather and can make you know when you need to turn your turn your windmills on and when you don't, and and kind of make it more more stable and certain. Um, and then in the home, we are quite heavily focused on two things. One is beginning to think of the car and the home as a single energy unit. So you generate your own energy, for example, through solar panels on the roof. You store it in the car battery. And that what you store in the car battery can both be used to drive the car, but also to heat and light your home. Mm, so it becomes, really a, becomes a single unit. And then the other big, the big, one of the big, challenges that um, you know, we will now need to undertake over the next 20 odd years um, is of course turning heat from gas yeah. to either a greener gas or an electric renewably electric powered systems and everybody's boiler will have to be either changed or removed yeah. every business's um, and, and that's the other area which we're kind of very focused on at the so, moment so this is and this is really important right because i think it's it's so easy to um, demonise entire swathes of industry as mm. being part of the problem. And mm. energy companies, mm. you know, you, you know why, but yeah. they, 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 get the, they get the flack. Um, uh, upstream, definitely, but even, even yeah. the, the downstream end of the, the industry. But what you're outlining there is uh, a kind of tech optimism, which I always ask people about. But it, it, you have to have that. It has to be yeah. part of the solution. And it's... Yeah. It's important yeah. that um, that companies in those industries are are thinking about this this stuff. Like genuine innovation, yeah. right? And, and and I think they absolutely are. And 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 you know, it's it's probably too easy to demonise the big fossil fuel generating companies because you can't just stop coal, oil, and gas and just move straight. I mean, you can't do it. There's got to be a transition. Well, pension funds will, yeah. will vanish overnight. If yeah, do. I mean, you, you've got a transition, but the point is they do need to transition at pace, yeah. um, and it is right that they're being pushed and poked. And so I, I think one of the most interesting aspects of that that, you know, is particularly coming through over the last two or three years is, is big investment funds making long-term investments um, and that they are clocking and this is work that Mark Carney is now leading that when you're risk assessing a long-term investment you have to properly take in account climate issues so yeah. if you are kind of going to drill and um, explore for uh, oil somewhere um, and you know it'll take you time to kind of work out whether the oil is there and then you build the, your platform and you're expecting it to continue for 30 odd years well you know will, will it still be actually will governments allow will people allow that energy still to be used in 20 to 30 years time and then then you need to think quite differently about how you're investing in something like that and that is now coming through genuinely and I think because it's coming through that's another very important kind of accelerator for those companies in terms of thinking about uh, you know what their renewable future is and their commitment do you to have, it do you have confidence that i'm um, looking cop 26 is in mm. in in this country this year right uh, in glasgow do you have confidence that we can um we can we can genuinely lead in the the shift to clean growth and a net zero economy yeah i th I, I you know i think we can and i think it's a really important indicator 
um, will be um, for both our own population and for the world more generally to, to see whether that's how we approach COP26. And I'm confident we will. Um, you know, I think in, in order for us to continue to be a leader, and, and my goodness, we need to be in this area because, you know, I mean, it's all very well. We kind of sort ourselves out, but we're 1% of the yeah. globe's emissions. I mean, it's much more important that we are also effective in making um, in helping China to do so. And, and, and so this is one of the huge industries that could be a growth sector and, and for the And it's a huge industry that could be a growth yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so w- what will enable us to do that? Well, we do need to make sure that our, that our existing partnerships remain strong. And, you know, I would say in the area of climate, it's really important that we, you know, stay very close to the European Union and we are a big spokesperson for this because... The European Union, for whatever other faults it may have, it is a leader in this area and it's a very effective leader in this area. We must kind of stay very close. Um, I do think, you know, my old profession, I do think we are, we punch above our weight uh, diplomatically. I think we are fabulously well networked in the world. Do you think we'll stay? Well, you know, that's our challenge. We have to make it stay. Uh, There's no reason why it shouldn't as long as we approach it in the right way. But... You know, if we don't, if we kind of retreat in on ourselves, and of course we'll lose it, but, you know, we really mustn't. Um, and, you know, continuing to invest and invest more in our diplomacy, I think, is a really important part of the sort of post-Brexit Britain. So I, I hope we will kind of really use COP26 to lead. It, it is a particularly important COP. It is the kind of the five years after Paris. So it's, you know, it's both, uh, you know, holding people to account for whether or not they achieve their Paris commitments. But then, you know, what is the next stage? And at a point where I think, uh, you know, so to our our advantage is that I think people have got it so much more than they had even five years ago. But at the same time, we, we actually have to kind of do this at far greater pace than we thought. And we thought 2015 was ambitious. So... Do you, do you welcome the pressure from uh, the Greta Tundries of the... Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I think, you know, I, I think it's a really important part of all of this. Um, do, do, do I think that the, the model she's offering is achievable? No, I don't. But do I think that the pressure that that is applying on people who might otherwise be kind of a little tardier than they should be? Of course it's right. Um, so I think, you know, these different pressures, that's, you know, that's what you need to get the right outcome. Mm. There'll be a lot of... Um, scrutiny on COP26, partly because, as you say, mm. it's that five years since Paris, but also I think it will send a strong signal one way or the other about which direction Britain is yeah. going in. Um, a final part of your CV that I have to ask about. I'm fascinated about the fact you're a trustee for the Royal Botanical Gardens. You tell me about whatever interest or passion led you there, why, why Q's work is... So important. It's it's very much li- linked to what we're talking about. I mean, Q, of course, is. I, was it would. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's 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 one. In fact, two very very beautiful botanical gardens, and they are fabulous. And just kind of just enjoying the beauty of those gardens is amazing. But you know, fundamentally, what it is 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 a science, a plant science organisation with a big big focus on biodiversity loss. Um, and that is really, I think, hoving into view now, linked to climate issues. So, you know, if you just take two examples, um, the climate resilience of crops over the next period will be absolutely fascinating. And Q is very focused on the wild relatives of um, some of our biggest crops because it is actually the wild relatives that are more resilient um, in different 
environment. So how you kind of develop those. So that's one big area. Another big area, of course, is that we, we, we all now, even the President of the United States, believes in mass reforestation. Um, and, of course, that's good to say, but you need to know where, which varieties, and so on and so forth. Again, Q is a Turkey's real really expertise. Uh, uh, it, interestingly, yes. um, I was reading. So, 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 so it is a, it's fabulous science. And I think, you know, David Attenborough, of course, has been... Um, wonderful on animals, but in, in fact, he's increasingly moving towards other things than animals. Yeah. And, and he's a great lover of Kew Gardens, in fact, I, I, you know, a, a, a neighbour of ours there. But I, actually, we, we almost need a David Attenborough for plants now. We need someone who's going, kind of really going to get people as interested and as understanding and as passionate about plants we as we David do about Bellamy animals. In my, in my youth, <laughs> we did, David yes, and mine. Oh, oh, I don't um, think I'm so. I'm reminded of a, of a quote by uh, Audrey Hepburn, to plant a garden is to believe in tomorrow. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Do you believe it, in tomorrow? Are you an optimist? Yes, I, I, I am an op- optimist, and, I, and I, think I, I think that's a lovely quote, which I hadn't heard before. I think it's absolutely right. And I, and I also think it's about, you know, it, it is about beauty and mental health and so on, and, you know, walking in a garden... Um, is 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 something that kind of for me anyway always brings you back into you know back into touch with nature and kind of makes you realise what's important. Oh, you're making me yearn for my homeland of Dartmoor. Ah, um, yes. That feels like a a lovely positive place to end. Nick, many thanks for your time. Thank you. um, I enjoyed that immensely. To everyone listening, if you enjoy our podcast, please do hit subscribe and share and leave us a rating or a review. It's really appreciated. Um, I'm Stuart. This has been Do Not Adjust Your Focus. Thank you.